everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Austin Common Radio Hour. I'm your host, Amy Stansbury, and today we're talking about policing, and more specifically, police contracts and police oversight. So right now, our city is grappling with some pretty serious questions about how we want to provide public safety. Does it involve reducing the Austin Police Department's vacancy rate, hiring more officers? And if so, how do we do that while still holding officers accountable for misconduct? And what about those who field police officers who make them feel unsafe in the first place? So right now, these questions are very much under debate in Austin, but on today's show, we're going to work our way through them, going behind the headlines and breaking down all of the recent news updates of which there are a lot. (laughs) So first, we're going to talk with Chris Harris, president of Equity Action, which is a social justice advocacy organization that gathered the signatures to put something called Prop A on the ballot this May. And if voters approve it, Prop A will create something called the Austin Police Oversight Act. Okay, let's listen in on that interview with Chris to learn more. I am here with Chris, and we're talking about a whole bunch of police issues let's let's start i thought we could kind of start at the beginning start explaining things for people first let's start police contract just like in general what is a police contract why is it important why is it something that um folks should care about sure yeah um so the police contract is um it's technically a meet and confer agreement firstly so you'll hear it referred to and called a police contract uh but Um, And it's in some ways very similar to the labor agreements that are agreed to uh, between municipalities, cities and their various labor unions. Uh, But the police uh, association is not technically a union. And so what they agree to is not technically a contract. Um, They're an association and and it's a meet and confer agreement. And and basically, it's an agreement that sets uh, uh, out, um, you know, the payment, uh, you know, benefits um, and things of that sort for the police officers. Uh, However, what it also entails are things like uh, a good portion of the oversight system, a lot of transparency rules, as well as accountability uh, rules, really limitations also exist in the contract. And and what these agreements really are um, is they are a way for both cities and police associations to lift themselves off of the floor that is state law. Okay, so state law actually governs uh, how municipalities, what rules apply to municipalities and their relationships uh, with both police departments as well as fire departments and their employees. Uh, They set uh, a lot of the wages, benefits, and other things uh, that apply uh, at at a high level, as well as accountability, oversight, transparency, like all of that's in state law. And if you don't have an agreement, then your municipality basically has to abide by that state law as is. And police departments don't like it because their pay isn't near as as good and police police officers don't like it. And the municipalities generally come not to like it as their citizenry becomes unhappy with the level of oversight, accountability and transparency that applies to the police department. And so ultimately what these agreements are is a trade. It's a trade of more money for the police officers, more benefits, uh, more compensation of various types. In in exchange, cities are are asking for uh, different hiring rules, um, oversight boards, more transparency about uh, the operations of the police officers and the police department, 
as well as um, in some cases more accountability. But <clears throat> and so one there there's that that's the kind of the true crucial initial context. And and you know to us there's a lot of problems with that, right? Uh, that accountability, that oversight, that transparency, you know, those comprise our civil rights uh, as it relates to how police are are you know able to treat us and then and and then ultimately what happens to them if they they violate the rules and then you know for it to be in exchange for money uh really doesn't seem right and then you know the other piece of it is um that it's it's really difficult because you always have to get the police association to agree uh, ultimately it is a negotiation meaning both sides have to agree and so there is just a limit to what police associations typically will agree to as it relates to the oversight, accountability and transparency they're willing to to have their members be subjected to. Right. And so that's why I know um, there was this um, signature drive to get um, something on the ballot, which will be on the ballot in May um, in order to basically, in part, pull pull out this accountability component from these negotiations, right? So that way it's more like when they are doing this meet and confer process and going through these negotiations, which they do, I don't know, like every five-ish years, I don't know how many, um, that accountability, these kind of measures won't be on the table. It'll be more kind of the normal stuff like pay, time off, retirement, all that kind of stuff. No, that's exactly right. We, you know, we're we, we've been through this cycle over and over every four to five years, just as you say, is typically how long they agree to for these contracts. And, you know, and, and unfortunately, what we found is that one, like you said, like I said, there's a limit to what the police will agree to just, you know, at the beginning. And then anything that they will agree to, the city has to exchange typically more compensation for. Um, and then even when <laughs> we're able to get things um one, those things are back on the table the next round of negotiations, so they may not stick around. Two, sometimes they don't even make it to the next round of negotiations. Like we've seen a pattern now of the police association really undermining the things uh, that that are that are achieved or won as it relates to our civil rights in these agreements. Great example is um, during the last round uh, where famously the police, the city council voted down uh, the agreement that it was historic. Uh, they had never done that before. Because of right. advocacy. First, yeah. First time ever here in the city. And, and many people say nationally uh, where accountability and oversight were the primary grounds, not pay. And, and um, you know, there were a few things that we won during that cycle uh, when they ultimately did agree to a deal. One of them was a strengthened office of police oversight, which is one of our, civilian oversight departments. Um, and over the course of that agreement, um, which we're technically still under right now, the police association filed grievance after grievance after grievance against the police association saying that they were overstep the police uh, office, the Office of Police Oversight, saying that that office was overstepping its bounds. And ultimately, those grievances went to an arbitrator who ruled in their favor. And so now our Office of Police Oversight has been significantly weakened back to, you know, maybe even more weak than it was before the last round of negotiations. And so these are the sorts of things that keep happening. So even when we win something in the context of negotiations, uh, the police association finds some way to get around it and to undermine it. So the ballot measure is designed, one, to like make a stable thing that we can count on 
It's to not codify subject, it. It would make yeah, it real. Yeah, that's right. To codify it. This can't this isn't something that's just up for renegotiation each time. And it's also not something that you can, as a police association, weaken uh, through, you know, whatever other outside process that you cook up. And <clears throat> and then, two, it's going to establish, you know, something stronger, stronger than we've seen the police association willing to agree to. Um, in three main areas, which is, you know, the strengthening the oversight office, really restoring it to what it was uh, with a couple of extra things. Uh, two, to, you know, really vastly improve transparency. Um, and then three, um, we, we want to allow for there to be more time for investigations to occur and discipline to happen in the case that uh, misconduct, uh, it, you know, is found. Uh, right now, there's a six-month um, statute of limitations for lack of a better term uh, for the police chief to discipline an officer uh, after an incident and and we want to push that out to a year so there actually can be a full year for an investigation to occur and the chief to decide discipline uh, because we understand that in, in in many cases they simply run out the clock and the six month passes and then no discipline can be rendered so um, you know we can get more into the nitty-gritty of those things but but those are really the the primary parts of our ordinance. Yeah, let's talk some more about the the oversight components because I actually think this is an area where most members of the public don't realize how little oversight we we do have over our police or that there's a lot of rules in place that prevent information from becoming public, independent investigators from getting involved, that kind of thing. So the structure of the Office of Police Oversight is that it um the, the folks that are part of that are not part of the police department at all. The police chief has no control over them. I guess the OPO reports directly to the city manager or to city council. That's right. Okay. City manager. City manager. Um, so, so that they'd be independent is the idea. And so talk about their role right now and kind of what you're thinking about strengthening to give them a little bit more power to investigate. Cause they're supposed to be like right now, if you had an interaction with a police officer, um, and you had a complaint or concern about it, you could go to the OPO, right? And let them know about it and they could start to investigate, but there's some hiccups there, right? So can you talk a little bit about, yeah. about what you'd be talking about strengthening? Sure, yeah. So, you know, how we, um, you know, really strengthened the Office of Police Oversight in 2018 was before they were called the police monitor and their job solely was to monitor the investigations that internal affairs did. So all complaints went straight to the police department and, and, and uniformed officers. Obviously, the entire investigation was handled by the police department and uniformed officers. And the police monitor was simply there to monitor the investigation and make sure, in theory, that the investigation uh, was done appropriately. Um, now, they they really, you know, they didn't have an insight into, into the complaints themselves. They had no control over them. They weren't the recipient of them. Uh, and, and then they had very little recourse if they found something wrong with the investigation that was going on, um, you know, to, to, to make sure that that was fixed in some way or that that was remedied. Um, and so what we did with the police oversight office when it was created in 2018 is we said, actually, they're going to be the intake for complaints. Now, you can still file them directly with the police department if you choose. But now you can go straight to these civilians. You can file them anonymously. Uh, so if you're worried about retribution or something, you don't you, you don't have to. Um, and they're going to be um, the people that look at all the complaints. They're going to take and do what's called a preliminary review. They're going to look at all the body cam footage. They're going to pull all the things that the police department itself holds uh, that they that they can access to find out if it's a legitimate complaint or not. 
they're going to then classify it. Okay. And so there's four classifications for complaints that really determine how they're treated subsequently. So they're going to provide that initial classification to say, this is something that really deserves a full investigation, or this is something where you should, you know, reach out to this person and apologize, you know, or, you know, and everything in between, right. Or it's not, it's an unfounded, you know, we looked at the body cam. It didn't go down. Like the complainant said, we're going to file this away and we're going to let that complainant know that, that we're not going to follow up on this. Um, and so that's what they were doing. And then subsequently, they would also monitor the investigation. So they would sit in on the interviews between internal affairs and, and the officer. Um, they can't ask any questions directly, but they could suggest them. Um, and, and then they had some recourse, right? They could, they could go to the chief. They could make their recommendations, their, their issues, their complaints, their policy recommendations, all of that public. The chief's supposed to respond publicly. Um, so there'd be this record of a back and forth when, you know, in their view, the system broke down in some way and someone didn't didn't receive the the, the treatment and then the justice they deserved on the other side of it. Um, and so what happened with, you know, these grievances and everything is that they they really stripped the oversight office of many of those powers. So they no longer can uh, do that preliminary review. They no longer have access to all of that footage. Uh, they don't have access to so many of the documents internally to the police department. They have no ability to, in that case, determine the legitimacy of complaints, make classification re uh, recommendations, um, really know uh, at all whether, you know what's going on. They simply take the complaint now, they forward it to internal affairs, who again are other uniformed police officers. They determine what to do with it. They conduct the investigation. Um, they even had some of their ability to recommend questions and things taken away uh, during the during the investigation process. So, you know, the primary thing our ordinance does is it relates to the Office of Police Oversight. It simply restores, you know, all of that stuff that we had before. It lets them look at all that stuff, do that preliminary review, make the classifications, you know, really, you know, say this is something that really needs to be followed up on, really needs to be investigated thoroughly. And then it has an extra step, which is that if they don't think that something very serious is being investigated, they have the ability to gather evidence. And right now they're they're actually strictly prohibited from gathering evidence. And our ordinance would say, you know, they actually have this ability in, in, in those cases where they're really not seeing an investigation occur. Um, and, so, and what does gathering evidence look like? Does that mean being able to look at body cam, cam footage? Does it mean being able to speak to police officers or no, just looking at other evidence that's already kind of available somewhere and they would gain access to it? Well, yeah, primarily it's it's really about enshrining that right to do that preliminary review, because that was how they took that ability away, because the police contract says very definitively that the OPO is prohibited from gathering evidence. And they used the you know, the difference between what the contract said and what the ordinance creating the oversight office said uh, as a wedge to really, again, to mm -hmm. steal these powers away. So it's really primarily about enshrining just that, that ability to look through all the evidence that the police already have um, on file to access that information. Uh, and then again, to to be able to determine if, you know, how to treat a complaint moving forward. But in theory, it would also it, at the OPO director's discretion. And we would envision this would be really in extreme cases where they're seeing that there's no investigation that's being done about something they deem very serious. They could potentially talk to a witness. They could potentially, you know, um, um, you know, talk to um, and, and gather information outside of what's held by the police department. Now, it, it 
it's unlikely that they would actually be able to interview an officer. Uh, officers, you know, could 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 reject talking to them. They don't they don't they wouldn't necessarily have to do that um, and, um, you know, and, and incriminate themselves or anything like that. So. Um, so th those are the primary things. And then we also want to ensure and enshrine their ability to subsequently make things public uh, in terms of all their recommendations, you know, all of the, uh, you know, uh, you know, real feedback that they have to the chief about policy and training and all the other things that uh, that they're seeing. Because, you know, the other thing about complaints and these issues is sometimes it's, you know, they get the they they hear the same complaint over and over. But if you look at the police policy, it's actually not a violation of policy. So mm. uh, an investigation that occurs thoroughly would say, look, you know, um, this isn't against the policy. And the OPO could say, yes, it's not against the policy. We get that and the officer shouldn't be disciplined because it's not in there. But we've heard this complaint a lot. And we think you should change the policy because clearly the, the community thinks that this is not right for an officer to do or else they wouldn't keep complaining about it. So those are the other things that we, we've lost now because they don't get to see all these complaints up front. They're not getting to to really look into them uh, and, and sort of do this preliminary review. So we really are are trying to ensure that, that they have that that ability. Right. And I forgot if you already said this, but is the OPO right now able to tell? Um, at least they know, right, what the result of investigations are that they pass along or no? They they find out, you know, subsequently, you know, where what the Internal Affairs Office recommends and then obviously what the chief decides. Um, you know, um, but but they don't they don't have any direct power, you know, okay. to make a disciplinary decision. Uh, they're just making a recommendation. State law continues to say that the chief of police is the main is the one who can make the final determination about discipline. And then also sets up an appeals process through which, um, you know, uh, someone can appeal the decision of the chief and then it goes to a subsequent body for that for that piece of it. So, you know, I think um, obviously just the lack of access that the OPO has now, uh, particularly after that arbitration decision, which happened in December of 2021, um, it's, it's really turned our oversight system into just an intake uh, system. They, they accept complaints, they forward them to the police department, and then they wait. They wait to see what happens. And, and there's really not much else they're able to do. And this is, again, a far cry from the powers that they just recently had, um, which we think should be restored as, as a, as a, as an immediate first step. And, you know, it, that lack of access, that lack of ability also turns into a lack of transparency, right? Because they also were, they were putting out, you know, information, um, you know, recommendations and things that now they really have no ability to, to make an assessment, to, to make a recommendation. So we're losing that insight as well uh, in the current system. And that was Chris Harris from Equity Action. And now it's time for some news updates. So in the interview we just listened to, Chris lays out the idea behind Prop A and Equity Action's motivations for putting it on the ballot. But that interview was recorded at the end of January, and a lot has happened since then. So first up, another proposition, Prop B, was officially added to the May ballot. This proposition asked voters to weigh in on something called the Austin Police Oversight Act, <laughs> but this Austin Police Oversight Act is very different than the one proposed by Equity Action. Prop B was put on the ballot by an organization called Voters for Oversight and Police Accountability, which is almost entirely funded by the Austin Police Association. 
And their version of the Austin Police Oversight Act is much weaker than equity actions, removing the ability for Austinites to submit anonymous complaints about officers to the Office of Police Oversight and prohibiting the Office of Police Oversight from even observing investigations into officer complaints. Now, we're going to do a whole episode on the differences between Prop A and Prop B as we get closer to that election, but for now, it's just important to know that they both exist. Okay, so another big news item that happened after I spoke with Chris is that then-city manager Spencer Kronk announced that a general agreement for a new four-year contract with the Austin Police Association had been reached. But here's the problem. If council had voted to approve that contract, it would have happened before the May election, since the current contract contract is set to expire on March 31st. And if a new four-year contract was ratified before the May election, any new oversight rules approved by voters couldn't go into effect until the next contract was signed, likely four or five years from now. So basically what's happening here is an election can't override a current contract. So in the face of all this, council voted nine to two to direct city staff to instead pursue a one-year contract extension with the Austin Police Association, with the idea being that officer pay and benefits could be preserved or maybe even a little bit improved upon as a show of goodwill, while still allowing the will of the voters to go through in May. But the Austin Police Association didn't go for this. They said they would not come back to the table to negotiate a one-year contract extension after they had just spent the past year negotiating a four-year contract. And this alarmed council, because it meant that the current contract would likely expire without a new one in place. And if that happened, the Austin Police Department would go under a default state civil service contract, which means less pay and benefits for officers and a weaker oversight system than even the one that's currently in place. It would also mean the loss of certain retirement benefits, potentially encouraging the approximately 250 officers who are eligible for retirement to choose to retire early and secure those benefits before the contract expires, which would, of course, exacerbate APD's staffing issues. So, (laughs) in the face of all of this, council voted to direct the new interim city manager, Jesus Garza, because by this point, they had already voted to fire Spencer Kronk. Anyway, they directed the new interim city manager to make sure pay and benefits don't lapse if a new contract isn't signed in time, and to maintain some level of oversight, again, despite not having a contract. And to do all this while we wait for the results of the May election, and then afterwards, hopefully, negotiate a new, longer-term contract again. And then on March 2nd, (laughs) this new short-term pay package was announced. Um, And it includes a 4% increase in pay for all officers under the rank of assistant chief, up to a $15,000 incentive for new cadets, that's $15,000, and retention incentives for current officers, including a pay increase for officers nearing retirement, which may help alleviate the current concern for officers considering retirement. And the plan also includes continuation of longevity pay, field training officer pay, mental health certification pay, bilingual pay, shift differential pay, and assistant chief pay. And that's pretty much where we are today. And basically, what's happening here beneath all of this is a debate about the best ways to implement police oversight in the city. Councilmember Allison Alter, who voted against asking city staff to negotiate a one-year contract extension over the four-year contract, has raised a lot of questions about whether or not council's recent decisions will actually lead to better oversight after everything is said and done. 
because there are some real legal questions here. And Prop A, um, you know, there are some real legal questions here about Prop A. And as is the case with any negotiation, it's hard to know exactly what the Austin Police Association is going to agree to. So we just don't know what's going to happen. So to dive deeper into this debate, let's listen in on an interview I recorded with Austin City Council member Allison Alter on February 28th. Okay, let's give that interview a listen. Okay, I'm here with Councilmember Allison Alter. We're talking policing, police contract things. Um, let's start, let's give people a little background first, just to begin with. So are we have, a, why don't you just explain what a police contract is and kind of why it's something city council is engaged with, why it's something the public should care about. Thank you for having me. It's really a pleasure to speak with you about this important issue. So a police contract is what governs the relationship between our sworn police officers and the city in terms of our obligations with respect to pay, with respect to benefits, to some degree, um, oversight, how promotions happen, how discipline happens. In the case of Austin, we as a community opted through an initiative to follow what's called 143, which is a chapter of the state code that then creates sort of the baseline for the negotiations, provides certain guarantees to the city and to the police officers. And the contract is our way of doing a give and take to move away from 143 so that we're each in a better place, so that the contract is ideally serving the police officers better than 143 and the city better than 143. Okay, so it's like a you're you're kind of tacking on, you're building on top of 143, adding extra benefits, extra oversight, whatever it might be, right? You also can deviate from 143. Oh, okay. So that's really, I think, the crux, the crutch of the the crux of the issue for a lot of um, the debates that we're having over oversight is 143 sets up a baseline, and you can only deviate from it with respect to certain elements of transparency and oversight, if you have agreement in the contract. Otherwise, you are obligated to follow 143 if you haven't got provisions within the contract that allow you to do that. Right. So I remember, you know, in a recent city council hearing, you were talking with some of our city's legal staff and that um, is on top of these things. It seems like if you want to do certain elements of oversight, like you mentioned, um, outside of what's already listed in 143 or whatever, you either can decide you're not going to be a 143 city at all. It's my understanding, like kind of not be part of that. A legislature change, which that's kind of, that doesn't feel super on the table at the moment, or it has to be agreed to in a meet and confer agreement, which is kind of what is happening with the city now. That's like getting APA, the Austin Police Association and the city to agree on something together. Is that right? Absolutely, except that we can't give up 143 without having a vote of the public to do so. Okay, and explain what that means. I think there was some conversation as well that like most cities in Texas are 143, but some aren't, maybe Dallas. Like, why would we be a 143 city or not? Or how did we become a 143 city? Like, can you give a little background there? I can try. Yeah, um, as best you can. <laughs> I can try. Um so we we were actually trying to look up what the year was that we had the vote. And I think it was in the early 2000s, but I, I'm not, 
I'm not sure. Okay. So this, you know, was created in some ways to provide um, extra support to our police officers by giving them the rights that are in 143. Um, and we voted, as did many cities at that particular time, to adopt 143 and provide um, this as the basis so that we could have meet and confer and that our officers would have the opportunity to bargain um, for additional pay and benefits. Got it. So, so before that, you know, and I don't know if you know the answer to this question or not, but before that you wouldn't have meet and confer, you wouldn't have this negotiation. Like what would be the benefit of yeah adopting 143? Was that the idea like that you could actually have more discussion? So I wasn't here in Austin when we, right. when we adopted it. Um, so I can't tell you all of the details of when it was adopted. Um, I can only extrapolate back that it was a different place and time. Yeah. And we were very much seeing this as an opportunity within state law to provide benefits and pay to our officers uh, in a way that also allowed us to accomplish particular city goals. It provided a framework for those conversations. Yeah. And so, like you said, this has kind of become a lot of the crux of the argument we're having right now because, and you brought this up at a recent um, council meeting, is we were trying to decide and and discussing, okay, equity action, you know, they have this um, petition that's going to be on the ballot in May, it's going to be Prop A, um, and it has a bunch of oversight provisions in there that legally couldn't happen unless they were agreed to in a meet and confer agreement, right? They'd, the Austin Police Association would have to agree to it. My understanding from their perspective is, um, you know, pass an ordinance saying that city council can't approve a contract without those elements in it. That kind of forces it, you know what I mean? It, it kind of forces Austin Police Association's hand, like you either get a contract with the things we want in it, or you don't get a contract. It seemed like you were raising some concerns there about what that could really mean or what some of the consequences, unintended consequences of that could be. Can you lay that out for people, like explain what some of your concerns were with that? Absolutely. I think the number one concern that I have is that we are going to have an initiative and people are going to think that as soon as they vote for Prop A, they're going to have the benefit of this great oversight system. And the fact is that nothing actually changes when that initiative passes absent a contract. So we can't achieve several of the key elements of the APOA initiatives goals with respect to oversight without agreement from the APA because we are we have agreed to be abiding by the 143 rules and absent state changes or absent a vote for the public by the public to stop using 143 we we are have to operate within that framework so the first concern that I have is that, you know, voters need to understand that in May, when they vote on this, and I, I fully expect that Prop A will pass, nothing changes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know that most people, at least at this stage, this many months in front of the initiative, understand that. 
And it can tell us that we have to do that. And we cannot sign a contract unless it does that. So how do you bring them to the table? In all likelihood, we are going to have to pay them a whole lot more money to get that oversight because we won't be able to have a contract otherwise. And when you do that, then you're not able to invest in other things that are really important to our community, like expanding EMS or violence prevention or supporting um, people who are in need of food resources. All sorts of other things get crowded out when you start to have to pay for the oversight. And it, it creates this setup that on one hand, they want to say it increases our bargaining power. On the other hand, it's not clear that it does. And absent playing it out and going through the process, we, we will never know. Um, that is not to say that we shouldn't have that level of oversight or aspire to that level of oversight. We should probably start this conversation by saying that Austinites deserve to feel safe in their community. For some people, that means having a certain number of police officers and a police presence. For other, it's the police that are making them feel unsafe. And the extra level of oversight is one of the mechanisms to help them change that nature of that relationship with the police. And so we deserve to have great oversight and we deserve to have a great set of first responders. So let's start with that as our premise. And then the question is, what is the path that gets us to that place? And ideally, we want to decouple the oversight from the pay because we believe that we deserve to have the oversight. The path to decoupling is more complicated. I was just going to ask that because it's like, <laughs> yeah, it's ironic because what you're talking about here, some of the fear or concern is that you'd have to pay more for oversight, which is, you know, when you talk to the equity action folks, exactly the opposite goal of what they're trying to achieve, right? They want to make it so that you're not negotiating every cycle and having to trade off more pay for oversight. But it seems like what you're afraid of is that this might happen anyway, in order to just get the police to the table. Is that kind of? Yeah. I mean, one of my hesitancies and why I didn't vote to opt to go to the one year is I am not convinced that we're going to get any better of an oversight regime than what was put forward in the proposed four-year contract plus the ordinance for the OPO and the proposed changes to the police chief rules through this process. What I do know is we will likely pay more than what was laid out in the four-year contract. Right. And, you know, I don't know if the right word gamble is the right word here, but it seems like what we're talking about is like, it's a little bit of a chicken or, or something. It's like, if if we pass this rule in, in May, the idea is the Austin Police Association could either decide to come to the table and know that you can't pass a contract without XYZ in it, or they could just say, we're not, we won't approve a contract with XYZ in it. Because some of the things in there, they've already, they've already said they won't pass a contract with some of these things in it. Who knows? Like they could be, they could change their minds, but I guess the fear is they could just walk away and say, 
we don't need a contract at all. I mean, they would make a lot less money then. Isn't the idea, I think from equity actions perspective, it's like this will force them to agree to it because otherwise they'll have to make less money. Is that not quite how you see it? Or is that, you know what I mean? You know, a lot of that depends on how this plays out. You know, right now we just passed an ordinance that gives them their current pay and we've tasked the city manager with coming up with a package to recruit and retain them. And depending on how that plays out, they could be getting their pay and not have any of the oversight. Now, there are other things that they will lose out on that they really want. Um, I think there were some very good things in the four-year contract that are not part of the broader conversation with respect to promotions so that when someone's promoted to certain levels, they now would have a probationary period. They would have to do a leadership academy. Um, Our APA members are frustrated with who's been promoted and how that process has gone. And you see that reflected in the leadership and in the culture, and they want to change that. And we need to change that if we want to have a better set of relationships with the community. Um, So there are things that we lose out on. We would now have to just have these tests and, and you don't get the same level of leadership, even of what we have right now through that. Um, And there are costs to that. There is, however, I want to add a third scenario, which Mm -hmm. is that they challenge the APOA in court and they won't agree to a contract until that is resolved. And if that plays out, they have a lot at stake to try to um, keep things going for a long period of time. The other issue is that you have the APA and then you have all of the individual members and you have lots of other cities that are recruiting police professionals. And so it is a very dynamic game. And as you said, it is somewhat of a game of chicken, but that's true of any negotiation. Right. Right. So I guess part of the fear what you're talking about here is this idea of what council just did. Um, which is extending benefits that we might just kind of exist in this world where we can't really get a contract signed, but council's also not comfortable with living in a world where, you know, officers lose a lot of pay and benefits because that could mean we lose even more officers and we're already struggling with that. And so we just have this ongoing cycle of like a year, a year more of this, a year more of this, but we, we haven't really changed anything big. Is that kind of what you're talking about? Absolutely. And we have less oversight than we would have had under the four-year contract. Now, we did include a piece in the ordinance to allow the Office of Police Oversight to carry out investigations, but they cannot share much of anything with the council or with the community Hmm. through that process because that information is governed by 143, particularly um, the Clause G, which is where you get this term the G file. And so our ability to have oversight, even if we have somebody in there who can do the investigation process is not as strong as it might have otherwise have been. Mm -hmm. But my understanding was that the G file wasn't really ever on the table. Like, I thought that was something that the Austin Police Association was like, we won't budge on this G file issue. Or did I read that wrong? There are elements of the G file that were um, under discussion in the four year, but not the full disclosure. 
Okay. But maybe some ability for the office of police oversight to share some of their investigation. There's sorry to interrupt you. There was definitely in the proposed four year, many mechanisms for the OPO to share information in the G file. There were particular circumstances when they could do stuff, but they had the ability to share generally and broadly as well. This point, we don't fully know under the ordinance that we just passed exactly what they could do and it be considered legal with respect to 143. Right. Because this has already been challenged, right? So we had put some of this oversight stuff into the last police contract the Austin Police Association sued, and some of it got rolled back again. So the idea was at least returning that in the new contract plus. So what we did was not go back, you know, in our ordinance, we did not go back to the old contract. We simply said we were giving them the investigative powers, which according to 143 can be vested by the city manager in someone, but they don't have the ability to provide a lot of that information publicly, as I understand it. I'm not a lawyer and I have not had a deep conversation about that, but there are limits to that. I do want to clarify that when we went to arbitration, that was based on elements that were in the current contract. And in that current contract, there were pieces in there that were challenged about what the Office of the Police Oversight could and could not do. In the proposed four-year contract, they took a different route. And so the only things that are listed in the you know, proposed four-year contract, which is mute, were things that were things that had to be in the contract in order for the OPO to have the ability to do certain things mm-hmm. and things that APA required as limits on the ability. And the idea was that you were going to take that oversight direction and put it in an ordinance if it didn't need to be in the contract. And so the idea was to adopt the proposed contract plus the ordinance and changes to the police chief's rules. And all three of those combined, if not challenged in court, would have provided significantly more oversight than what we currently have under arbitration and arguably under the current contract, even before arbitration. The catch, the catch, which is why I said, you know, I would want a certain, would have wanted a change to the four-year contract were we to have voted on it, is that APA still could have challenged some of those pieces in court and undermine the oversight, but we would have been stuck with respect to the pay. But we could have added something called a reopener clause that I think had we chosen the four-year route, we could have done. But obviously that's a move. And so that clause would be what? That if they tried to take it back to court, you could reopen the contract? That we would not be obligated to be responsible for the pay and other benefits of the contract if they undermine the oversight provisions via actions in Mm. court. Okay, um, And I think we would have been able to adopt a four-year contract that did that had we tried to do that. Mm-hmm. And so what comes next? What, what, what can the 
I know this is like really up in the air right now as to what it is, but what what can the public expect? What kind of comes next with this police contract conversation now? I think that's a really good question. (laughs) I think that we all have to take a deep breath and we all have to recognize that we are stronger as a city when we are a we and not an us versus them. We have to continue to express that we respect and honor the sacrifices and the risks that our officers take. We need to commit to continuing to pay them as among the highest, as the highest paid in the state. And we need to acknowledge that our community wants strong oversight. We will see how the initiative plays out. We have tasked our interim city manager with seeing whether there's a package that helps us in the short run to minimize the disruptions to our recruitment and our retention. And we will have to see what happens come May with those negotiations and whether our negotiating team with support from council can get to a place that we can all be comfortable on a contract. We are all better off if we are under contract, but a lot can happen between now and then. Mm -hmm. Um, And lots of individuals have to make decisions on their lives based on their individual needs. Um, For some, they're going to make the choice to retire and there will be consequences for our ability to provide public safety based on that. Yeah. Um, I know we're already over time. Do you have a quick minute to talk about 911 call center? Do you have to run? Sure. Sure. I can do it real quickly. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. So just give us an update. Obviously, there's been a lot of news about this. Where where are we right now with our 911 call center? I think in October, there was a briefing that said, oh, gosh, we almost had like a 50% vacancy rate or something crazy. Ha- has that changed at all? Where's council looking at with this one? We just got a report this morning on some of that information in the public safety committee meeting for council. I think it's really important that we recognize that council has said this has been a priority and a need for quite some time. I've been working on this since spring or summer of 21, had a budget rider in for fiscal year 22 and summer of 21, have been involved in a lot of resolutions. What we need to do is treat the long wait times to treat the staffing part, the staffing vacancies with the urgency that they deserve. This was one of the key reasons that I wanted Spencer Cronk to go is that over and over again, I expressed that this was an emergency and very little was done. Uh, We've made some changes recently with respect to compensation following the increase to $20 an hour, but they've not been sufficient uh, to address the level of the crisis. What we had failed to do on a management side is really understand that there was a problem. You can't fix something if you don't admit there's a problem. Our new interim city manager has been very forthright in saying this is a failure and this is a problem. And that is the first next step to getting resolution, as well as a need to be creative. We need to make sure that we're using data and technology, um, thinking very clearly about what needs to happen to address the staffing crisis at the emergency communication center. And to be clear, the people who work there are not uniformed police officers. 
right. The, the ultimate lieutenant is there's a lieutenant over um, the emergency communication center, but otherwise under normal circumstances, the call takers and the dispatchers are not sworn personnel for police. They do currently have some sergeants who are stepping in on an overtime basis mm-hmm. to answer calls, but normally the callers and the dispatchers are not sworn personnel, although they do require a significant amount of training, which was part of what makes this challenging uh, to resolve. Right. But the police contract negotiation doesn't necessarily have impact over this unless you're talking about not call wait times, but dispatch times, I guess could be. Yes, it has nothing to do that. The police contract has nothing to do with the wait times to get the phone answered. Right. At 911, um, the staffing levels to the extent that they are a function of the contract might affect how long it takes once you reach 911 to get a call dispatched. I do really quickly want to just add a couple things about um, how we rebuild that trust with the community going yeah, back to the great. earlier conversation. So if we think about ways to add to the conversation about how you rebuild trust, I think it's important to understand that oversight is only one of the tools and that happens sort of ideally you're thinking about it as preventative, but it is really something that is happening after the fact. And then when it happens, it's supposed to help, but, but something bad has to happen in order for it to, to take effect at some level. There are other things that we can do to minimize the use of force, which is really the crux of the issue there. We need to institute de-escalation training system-wide with supervisors as well. Um, We are on the verge of doing that. We have a commitment to be moving forward with that. We also can be adopting the bystander for law enforcement training called ABLE, which they have committed to do, which is another piece of that. There are policies and procedures that enable for more oversight. Um, There are promotion rules and leadership training that help get the leaders in place who create an environment where people want to do the right thing, um, where there's not a culture of retaliation, where there's a culture of we are public servants. There are also things that we can do with respect to investments in violence prevention, as well as community policing opportunities for training and experience. That ABLE program you talked about, is that getting at some of what we hear about on the news a lot lately where there's an incident of one officer, uh, you know, engaging in misconduct and another officer just kind of sits there, uh, but trying to, is that kind of what you mean by bystander, like uh, giving them the tools to understand how to intervene on some of these situations and stop that behavior? Absolutely. Okay. And there is a recent memo if you want to look at it. Um, Yeah. From the, from the chief, I had been asking about both of these trainings and making sure that they would happen um, as part of the negotiation process. I thought that was really important. And they're moving forward with the ABLE and with ICAT, which is the de-escalation training. They're moving forward with it for a large part of the force and exploring how they can extend it to the full force. Great. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat and explain all of that for us. It's been confusing and a crazy few weeks. So it's helpful to kind of get a little summary. Anytime. I think it's a really important topic and I appreciate the opportunity to help people understand it a little better. And that was Austin City Council Member Allison Alter. 
And that's pretty much our show for today. But it certainly isn't the end of our conversation about policing in Austin. So make sure you're following us on Instagram at the underscore Austin underscore common because we're providing regular news updates there. And like I said earlier, be on the lookout for an additional podcast episode specifically on props A and B as we get closer to election day. The Austin Common Radio Hour is brought to you in partnership by the Austin Common and Co-op Radio. The Austin Common is a local news source that helps Austinites be informed and make a difference in their community. You can learn more about the Austin Common by visiting theaustincommon.com or following us on Instagram at the underscore Austin underscore common. Co-op is a cooperatively run community radio station based in Austin, Texas. To listen to more of Co-op's amazing lineup of shows, visit koop.org or tune in to 91.7 FM. This show is hosted by me, Amy Stansbury, and produced by John Hoffner. You can find podcasts of the Austin Common Radio Hour on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. And one quick friendly request on this, if you like our show and you find it useful, please consider rating, reviewing, and subscribing on your favorite podcast app. It really does help us to be seen and heard by more folks in Austin. So thank you in advance if you're able to do that for us. Thanks for listening. 